arguably, these are some of the most confusing texts in Scripture because they are visions and they are, uh, it's, it's considered apocalyptic literature. These are actual visions and dreams that Daniel has, and Daniel's been given the gift of prophecy. Um, last week, we went through Daniel chapter 7, and we began by talking a little bit about apocalyptic literature, talking about how it's very symbolic, and that there are symbols that are used to express true truths. So uh, last week, when we talked about the vision, there were beasts that he saw in his vision. Um, there was kind of broad, somewhat vague interpretations of that dream, but there were very clear principles and truths that were laid out there um, in Daniel's vision in chapter 7. And as we jump into the vision of chapter 8, I want us to recognize and remember that this is a different vision. Now, there's still symbolism that's going on here, but we need to make sure that we don't necessarily assume the same things that we saw in Daniel chapter 7 and make assumptions on them in Daniel chapter 8. Now, this vision is, is very different than the one that we saw last week, if you were here for that. So, to begin with, I'm just going to read the text. All right, it's 27 verses, Daniel chapter 8, and then we're going to go back through um, a little bit more uh, carefully and, and talk about it. So, to read, Daniel chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first, meaning this chapter 7 vision, verse 2. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high. But one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing by the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram, and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, How long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate? and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot. 
And he said to them, and he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood. And when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Verse 18. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me, and he made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken, in place of which were four, four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction, and shall succeed in what he does, and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand, and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken but not by human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. Verse 27, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Um, Jonah and the whale is a little easier. You know what I mean? All right. God said, go to Nineveh. He didn't. Swallowed by a whale. He makes it right. Um, you know, he gets spit out. He preaches Nineveh turns. You know, what great lessons we can learn there, right? It's kind of, it's, it's just weird, you know? Just, it's, it, there's, there's bizarre things here. Now, what we do have in this vision that we do not have in the vision from chapter 7 is some very clear clarifications. There are interpretations of this dream um, by an angel of the Lord to Daniel himself. Now what we saw last week in Daniel chapter 7 was we saw four beasts, ghastly, horrific, terrifying beasts that were not barnyard animals. You know, it was, it was a lion, but it had wings and it had the mind of a man. It was a bear that had ribs in his mouth and it stood up on its hind legs to pounce and destroy anything. And then there was a beast that didn't have an animal associated with it, but it was terrible and it had iron teeth. You know, it was very, very terrifying, which it was designed to be. And what we saw last week was that it was um, when the angel of the Lord gave the interpretation to Daniel, he did not specify um, which kings and kingdoms these may or may not represent. But what he did specify was that there was a glorious king that was coming that was going to end this present age that is defined by evil and terror. And a new age will begin. And that is where our hope lies. The real cut and dry. It's kind of scary. It's kind of weird. But it's undefined. But it's supposed to be scary. And it was. But we saw the truth of the text. 
was that there is a coming king. We saw an image of Christ very clearly in 500 BC shown before us in chapter 7. The difference between that and this chapter is we have different animals. We don't even have beasts. We have a ram. Rams have two horns. We have a male goat that's a little unicorny, you know, with, with with one horn that comes out. But we see the angel of the Lord give Daniel a very specific interpretation. He said, the ram is the Medo-Persian Empire. He says it very specifically. Um, verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is a king of Greece. Um, so th- things are laid out for us pretty specifically here. And it begins at the very beginning. And what I want to do is I want to walk through this text again, now that we kind of have the bizarre context laid out in front of us and walk through piece by piece and see where this leads us. All right, so go back to the beginning of chapter 8. All right, the beginning of chapter 8 is it begins with a vision, but it identifies that this is a different vision. It came after the one uh, that we saw in, in chapter 7. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, <clears throat> which we see through historical documents that that's roughly 550 B.C., The vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that, which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision. And then he goes into a series of statements that are incredibly specific. I'm in Susa, all right, which is a city. He says, I'm in the capital. I'm in this district of Elam. And I'm not even just there, but I'm very specifically at the canal of Ulai. You know, the beginning of chapter 7 was very broad and vague. It said, out in the midst of the great sea, and four winds blew together, and out of it came these beasts. So it was a very broad statement, but we're beginning this uh, vision with very definitive, specific locations where Daniel is seeing this. Look at verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth, earth without touching the ground, and the goat had conspicuous horn between his eyes. We see that that goat, as interpreted by the angel of the Lord, is uh, the Greek kingdom. How many, of you, how many of you have ever heard of Alexander the Great? Mm-hmm. Raise them up if you've, okay. We learned about that in history, right? Eighth, ninth grade, somewhere in ancient history. Alexander the Great. When Alexander the Great uh, took over, when his father was killed, um, he began a campaign that was the fastest moving campaign and the broadest campaign in all of history up to that point. He just came through and just took over the world. Um, But he died uh, very young, 33. When he died, there was a little bit of a power struggle. Um, And uh, he had no legitimate heirs to the throne because he was still young. Um, And what ended up happening after several years was he had four generals, and they just divided his kingdom into four regions. And then none of them were as strong as Alexander the Great. And so what we see is we see this male goat with the horn, and the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord, identifies the goat as the Greek kingdom, verse 21, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king, Alexander the Great, verse 22, as for the horn that was broken, in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. All right, we see that. It's all... Uh, recorded throughout history in um, other non-biblical sources as well. Verse 23, And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, 
a king of boldface, one who understands riddles shall arise. We see it in the first half of Daniel chapter 8, in verse 9, it says, Out of one of them, meaning one of the horns, came a little horn. This is the weird imagery that we see four horns, and then there's a little one. It's like, I envision a little pinky horn. It's, it's, it's weird. Um, verse 9 Out of one of them came a little horn, which, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land, which would be. Um, the nation, the promised land, which we now know as the nation of Israel. Verse 10, it grew great even to the hosts of heaven, and some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground, and it trampled on them. Verse 11, it became great, even as great as the prince of the hosts. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. Look at verse 12. And a host will be given over to it, together with the regular burnt offering, because of trans- transgression. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes. One, good. Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes was um, a king that arose out of one of the four kingdoms that broke off of Alexander the Great. All right, um, there are different there were different kingdoms, and his it was called the um, Seleucid Empire Dynasty, whatever. And he, uh, Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, um, was one of those kings. You can Wikipedia him, and the article is, is, is rather small. Um, however, he's the small horn. All scholars agree across the board. Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, um, was one of the stronger kings of the four kingdoms during that short reign of time that the Greek Empire still had authority. And what Antiochus IV Epiphanes did was he began a campaign. There was an uprising in Egypt. It said that he spread down to the south. He went down and defeated one of the Ptolemies in Egypt um, and, and beat them pretty soundly. And when he was coming back from Egypt, he heard that there was a uprising in Israel. And so he went angrily to Israel to immediately suppress what he had heard was an uprising. He assassinated the priest, the high priest in the uh, temple. And um, extra biblical sources, because we don't have these numbers in the text, but extra biblical sources tell us that when he went into Israel, that he killed 40,000 Jews over the course of three days. And took captive between ten and forty thousand more. Um, and on top of that, um, he desecrated the temple. Now, this is this is pre-Christ. All right, this at this all right, this vision was in 550 BC. And Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth, or the fourth Epiphanes, um, he reigned from 175 to 164 BC. So this is hundreds of years later. Everyone following? BCs moved backwards. All right, so 550 BC when the vision happened. And Antiochus Epiphanes IV came in the mid-100s B.C., all right? So this is a vision of things to come. And he came in, and at that point, and really caused one of the greatest persecution of the Jews in history up to, up to that point. And he not only slaughtered them, three days, um, 40,000, which means, you know, blades, um, but he then desecrated the temple. 
Now, I think it's hard for us to envision the, the devastation of a devastation, the devastation, how devastating it would be to desecrate the temple. But in Jewish culture, the, the temple was ultimately the glue that bound their culture together. You know, because we have Christ now in our life, we see that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells within us. But it didn't work that way in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit was still present, but not personally indwelling the souls of every single believer. The, the temple was the place where you got right with God. All right? And I'm not saying that lightly, but the Old Testament law uh, applied, and there was a sacrificial system that was very specific. It wasn't just a good thing for, for we practicing Jews to do, but it is what you did to, to be saved and to be right with God. And, and it was not only part of your heritage and your tradition, but it was holding on to the very, the very essence of your eternal security. And for that place, the, the temple, to, to be overrun and to be desecrated was a very personal, uh, cultural smack in the face, spit in the face. So the high priest was killed. Um, and then what Antiochus IV Epiphanes did was he came in and he sacrificed on the holy altar a pig, which was, a, which was an unclean animal. I mean, you couldn't walk into the temple if you had touched a pig, much less bring in a pig, slaughter it, um, and then burn it on the very altar that was sacred to you. And then he, within that, erected a, uh, a new idol to Zeus, a different god of all things. Okay, So the, the, the temple is completely <laughs> desecrated. And then he began to incorporate laws by saying, you will not practice your belief system. I'm not only going to come in and, 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 and largely kill you, but I'm going to desecrate the thing that really holds you together as a culture, but then I'm going to disallow any sort of practice that you have uh, as a Jewish culture. He disallowed um, circumcision. He disallowed any sort of worship, of course. Um, he rewrote the calendar so that they wouldn't have the same calendar with the same holiday system on it. Um, just a bad dude, all right? And so we see through here, uh, look back at verse 9. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south. All right, that's when he took over Egypt. Um, and towards the east and toward the glorious land. And it grew even to the host of heaven. The host of heaven is referring to a gathering together of of uh, of God-fearing, believing Jews. And some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground, trampling on them, meaning the saints. Verse 11, it became great, meaning Antiochus IV Epiphanes. It became great even as the great prince of the host. All right? In the ESV, prince of the host is capitalized. You see that in your text? Antiochus IV Epiphanes was one of the first people uh, in history to refer to himself really as specifically God. He made coins um, that said, had his image and it said God manifest. So he was, he was, he was putting himself as God in this culture. Uh, middle of verse 11, and the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, meaning uh, away from God, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. All right, this is when all the desecration of the temple took place. And a host, meaning a great many believers, um, believing Jews uh, will be given over 
to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. Now, this is not addressed very specifically throughout the course of this text. It's just kind of hinted at. But again, if you look at verse 12 here, those three words, because of transgression, this is referring to the transgression of the people of God. This is referring to sin, not just a single sin, but a cultural, corporate movement away from the commands of God that brought then, because of broken covenant, judgment from God on his chosen people. And this isn't unpacked a whole lot here. But these things are happening, and it says specifically, because of transgression. And it will overthrow, or it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act, and it will prosper. And then Daniel hears from an angel of the Lord, and he says, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering? Meaning, how long will our temple be desecrated? How long will we be disallowed to worship our God? How long will we we be disallowed to come in and and act as a culture, act as a nation, um, like we are commanded to in the Levitical law? Um, The transgression that makes desolate and the giving over, this is the end of verse 13, the transgression that makes desolate and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot, question mark. And he, the angel of the Lord, verse 14, and he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be restored to its rightful state. Historically, just as a timeline, this is happening what we would call the intertestamental period. From the end of what we have in the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament where we are introduced to Jesus Christ, there's a couple hundred year gap where there are not new books that we would have written um, that are included in our Bible. Um, as a result of Antiochus IV Epiphanes, there is a Jewish revolt. How many, how many of you have ever heard of the Maccabees? Maccabees. All right, there's a couple books, First and Second Maccabees. Um, in the Catholic Bible, they consider that canonical, or they consider that inspired. We do not. We see it as historically accurate, but we do not see it as the inspired word of God. And First and Second Maccabees gives an outline of the Jewish revolt and the rebellion against Antiochus, Antiochus IV Epiphanes against his slaughter of the Jews. Antiochus IV eventually dies somewhere, like on, on not a real big deal. Eventually he's just kind of gone. And a man named Judas Maccabee um, leads a revolt, and they reclaim the temple, and they re dedicate the temple to the Lord. And that is where we get the holiday of Hanukkah from. So if you research Hanukkah, that is a Jewish holiday, it happens around Christmas time for, for us. Um, that is a celebration of the recapturing of the temple as a result of Antiochus IV Epiphany. Isn't that crazy? And the slaughter that happened there in that terrible time in Jewish culture. So um, at the, in verse 14 there, we see, And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. Across the board, there is disagreement on what this 2,300 days means. And um, without knowing specifically, is this 2,300 days from when... Um, the temple was uh, desecrated because the pig was slaughtered in Zeus' uh, Zeus altar, or was it when Epiphanes um, came in to begin reigning? You can look at it from all different ways, but we know for sure 
is that it is a very specific number, and this dream is a very specific dream as opposed to the last one. You following? All right, so that there is a very set, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before, God knows what is going on. It is not just a, I have a feeling that this is going to go on, but he gives in, intricate details of what's going on. Who's going to reign? What kingdoms are going to become powerful? How they're going to fall? How many kingdoms are going to rise from it? And even who's going to do what within, within all of this? What's interesting is there's like maybe a verse, you know, verse and a half. I mean, very, very, very little lip service is given to Alexander the Great here, but he's very specifically defined. All right, he's the first king from Greece with one horn. All right, um, but that's who everybody knows. I said, who knows Alexander the Great? Well, we've all heard of Alexander the Great, but God is kind of like, eh, he's going to be powerful, but not for long. He's going to die quick, you know. And it just kind of moves on. But then you introduce somebody into history, prophetic, intimate, intricate, detailed history, and we have Epiphanes the Fourth, Antiochus the Fourth, Epiphanes that nobody's really ever heard of. But God is saying, listen, this guy's coming. It's going to be bad. It's going to be a form of judgment on your transgressions because we have a covenant between you and me. And I'm going to use this uh, to draw you back to myself, which we see here. Um, but God is very specifically saying, I am, I am not only in control because he says in verse 24, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. Meaning God, that he didn't get his power himself, but God allowed him to have power. And then end of verse 25, it says, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. So it's not just circumstance that like, oh, and take the fourth epiphanies, he ends up get, getting defeated because that's just how history happens. No, that he is taken out, not by human hand, which means by the hand of God. And when I say you're going to suffer for 2,300 days, that means I know when it's going to begin and I know when it's going to end intimately, specific, specifically and intricately. I know because I'm in control of this. Dan Daniel is incredibly bothered by this. Um, verse 27 says, And I, Daniel, was overcome so much so that he lay sick for some days. Then he says, I arose and went out about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. This vision that Daniel had, he got it. He felt it. He, it was clear to him that this was a prophetic vision that was coming of a bad time in the history and the life of the Jewish nation. And that it was coming because of transgressions of the nation. Which at this time, Daniel is in the Babylonian exile. He is, he is exiled from the promised land because of transgressions. But we see throughout the course of the Old Testament that all of this stuff is ultimately prophesied. Um, you know, in the vision that we saw last week, we saw... Uh, the prophecy that these age, the age of the world that we're living in now, kingdom after kingdom after kingdom, is defined by evil and terror. And one day there will be a great king and a great age that will begin a new era, and it is where we can put our hope. It's a little vague. We don't know exactly what and when, but we know that it is coming, and we can anchor there. Here we have very specific about the near, very specific information about the relatively near future historically, even though it's outside the time of Daniel, but we can look back on it and we put all the, all the pieces together. Look what happened. The Medo-Persian Empire did rise up. It said one horn was taller than the other one because we see that the Persians combined with the Medes, but the Persians were stronger. And then we see that the goat that came in swiftly 
um, from the east came in swiftly, and he, he did take him out with the one horde. And that one horde was Alexander the Great. And when that one horn was broken very quickly, he did have four kingdoms that came up. And of the one kingdom, there was a minor horn that came up that was another king that did persecute the Jews, that did change the calendar, that did desecrate the temple, and did slaughter them. We see all of that, not only in the Bible, but outside the Bible. So those are prophecies that we see in the, what they saw, but in the near future. And what we're going to see further in the book of Daniel is other prophecies um, that have to do beyond our time, specifically the Antichrist. And we're, we're going to get into that in weeks to come. So we're seeing all different levels of prophecies here that have to do with all different spans of time. And what's clear through all of them is, A, God is in control. B, there's still a covenant that we live by. C, when you break that covenant, God will not give up on you. We don't like the judgment. We don't like the punishment. It's not friendly. It's not pretty. It does cause us to question. And if, God forbid, we ever find ourselves in a terrible, horrible situation like this, it would be legitimate to ask the question where is God in all of this and to look and strive to, to answer that question and look back to the text and say oh we see him we see that there's been a broken covenant we see that all things are under his control we see that he has he has named um, each and every one of us and he has named the stars and he knows who's coming and that the kings and the kingdoms that rise in the fall that lift up the name of God and spit on the name of God, that God sets them in, in, in play like characters in a play. And when their lines are done, they're off the stage, and he's in control of it all. Now, one reason I think that when we see Daniel so overcome and sick and distraught over the future of his, of his people is because all throughout <laughs> these texts that we saw last week, this week, and we'll see in the future— that these prophecies are, are holding to the corporate nation of Israel. That it's all throughout the text of the Old Testament. You see God lifting up, making promises to, judging, listening to, restoring, um, redeeming. Uh, the nation, the corporate body of believers that is either rising or falling together based on either their pursuits of the living God or their rejections of the living God. And Daniel is a prophet in, in Old Testament times whose people have largely led astray and whose people has then been put under judgment but he knows and he sees the promises in both Deuteronomy and Ezekiel that they will return to the promised land. And that Daniel actually sees it in the course of his lifetime. Um, and the temple will then be rebuilt and, and restored. But he sees that the nation corporately as a body rises and falls based on how they together are either pursuing or not pursuing the God of the universe. Now, when we look at these visions... And we ask ourselves questions like, well, what does that have to do with us now? How do we apply this now? Because these are speaking of times that were to come to Daniel and the children of Israel, um, but they have come and they have gone. And Tychicus, the fourth epiphanies, did come and he was terrible. Um, he did tear down or desecrate the temple, but it was restored. We saw that in 164 BC. Um, there's a festival for it. 
or a feast, Hanukkah, festival of lights. Um, and then, and then, and then history history moved on. So what what do we what do we see here corporately now as New Testament believers in all of this? And I think one of the clear things that we see is that we, as a body of believers, are a corporate body of believers. That as a body, we we rise and we fall like the children of Israel. Now, in America, and in Western, especially, uh, you know, I love America. <laughs> I think capitalism works. Um, I like what America stands for. But we're very individualistic, you know? Me and mine, you know? Me and my career, uh, me and my, my savings account. If this doesn't work um, for me, then I don't necessarily have to be a part of it. It's a free country, you know? If I don't like what this group stands for, I can kind of come over here and just say, hey, I disagree. I'm not going to judge you, uh, but I disagree, and I'm going to stay and hold to me and my personal convictions and how I interpret Scripture. Uh, Though we are saved individually, the gospel says that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and when Jesus Christ came, that each one of us are not saved by the, the home that we were raised in, we're not saved by a class that we sit in, that we're not even saved because we own a Bible or that we go to church, but we're saved because we personally recognize that we are, in fact, a sinner in need of, in need of a Savior, <clears throat> and that we are due, because of our sin, wrath and judgment. But because of what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross, we can hold on to that, and we can accept that in faith and ask the Lord Jesus Christ to save us from our former selves, our former sin, and forgive us of that. And then we become new. We become a child of God, we become we be, we be, we are then incorporated into the family. So we are saved individually, but saved into the corporate body of Christ. And I believe one of our faults, y'all, in America, is that we don't see the body of Christ as corporately as maybe we should. And I think a lot of times we don't recognize that we are the body of Christ at a greater level than we even realize. That we are, I mean, I'm not trying to like hip hip hooray us here, but we are this current generation of believers. If you're in this room and accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, we, we are it, all right? And there are others coming behind us, and there are those in front of us that will pass before us, and we are called as a body, as a believing Group to say that we will do all that we can to grow and to thrive corporately as a body because we will be judged as a body. We will be judged as a body. We'll be judged individually, but we will also be judged as a body. How did we live our lives for the sake of the gospel that is given to us? The children of Israel were judged as a body. And they were blessed as a body. They were restored as a body, corporately together. And I think the danger that we sometimes fall into in our successful individualistic culture is that we can just say, you know what? I disagree with everybody who I think is wrong. And then I'm going to hang out with my Christian friends. Um, And maybe that's not enough. You know? It was God who revealed to Daniel the things of the future. 
with intimate detail. I mean, Alexander the Great, you know, Antiochus the Fourth Epiphanes, what specific, who, who he was gonna, what, what line he was gonna come from and what specifically he was gonna do hundreds of years in advance. And in the same way, God is the one who reveals himself to us, right? God is the one who makes nonsense to the world the wisdom of the ages to those that follow Christ. If you're sharing your faith with anybody, it's not you who's enlightening them to the truth of the gospel. It is the Holy Spirit that is, that is taking the blinds off of them and revealing himself to them. And what we as a body, as, 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 a, as, a, as a current generation of adult believers, ought to be doing is seeking and praying for God to reveal himself up to us in greater and greater ways and that he will reveal himself us to our culture so that we can grow as a body of Christ and not, and not, and not fall as a body of Christ. We see, um, I, I was at Charleston Bagel this week and this lady walked in who I know very loosely from my days in student ministry. And uh, she just said, hey, I'm leaving, I'm leaving my church. I'm coming over to yours. I don't know how, I don't know what to say to that, <laughs> you know. Um, like, okay, cool, you know, glad to have you. And she said, we just voted for uh, homosexual pastors, and so I'm out. Um, you know, an evan- evangelical church here in Mount Pleasant. And uh, it was like, whoa, I mean, that's crazy. Um, and... There's a lot of stuff wrong with, with all of that, but our culture's shifting. We see that. You see it. I know you do. With our culture, um, our, our believing culture is shifting, too, in America. Um, you know, I've talked about this before, but we see history doesn't keep secrets. <laughs> we see the cycle of uh, darkness in a culture, God revealing himself and seeing a revival, people coming to know Christ and the, and the church accelerating and growing. Um, and then we see it start to numb, get a little boring. Um, people are, you know, children are raised in believing homes and then they're, belie- they're raised in homes that were raised in believing homes. The next thing you know, it's just not that interesting and I don't know if I believe that anymore. And then the lights start to dim, and then it goes dark again, right? You see that in Europe, right? You see the dark ages, dark. It was dark. Um, we see the uh, Reformation. The lights turn on. We, we get great literature and truth and godly men that came out of that era. Um, and then we go back on a mission trip in Czech Republic where 60% of this nation is atheist. You know, not unbelieving or different religions, but just, just straight up don't believe. You know, people don't meet in church anymore. It's a museum. You pay an entrance fee, you know, but it's a beautiful place with a sign that says no longer used for religious services anymore. You know, you see the, you see the United States with the Great Awakening. People came here for religious freedom, and we saw the growth of uh, kind of the American way and a very friendly place for Christians, and we saw an acceleration of evangelicalism. Um, and we're dimming, aren't we? You know? But you see China, which is communist and dark, and there's persecution, but you see the house church thriving. You see North Korea um, with kind of a mega church movement, ultimately. But people are coming to Christ, hundreds and thousands. Um, 
And then you wonder about Africa. You know, it still seems really dark. But it seems like you follow the cycle that, you know, maybe that's next. Maybe we're going to fall into Europe. But we are responsible. <coughs> Straight up. If you're a believer, we are responsible for our age. We are responsible for our culture. We're responsible for our own personal pursuit of Jesus Christ. But our responsibility um, includes the corporate body of Christ. Um, and that is why I think it is so dangerous to come to church twice a month. You know? That's why I think it's so dangerous to slide out of a community group because it's not meeting all, it's not maybe as good as you think it could be. You know? That's why I think that, um, I think it, it can be dangerous to church hop. Now, I tell people all the time, like, there's some place that you can really meet your needs more and you can serve better, go. You, know, you don't have to be these Cooper. You don't even have to be at this class. But we see this. We see a cultural slip. We see uh, our, our preferences determine our involvement in the body of Christ. You've seen it, haven't you? Um, we don't like this or we don't like that or I don't like this group or I don't like that group or this study isn't really doing it for me anymore so I'll take a break. Um, it's dangerous. And it's that dimming of the lights um, that, that draws judgment. Um... This text, um, there are two, two halves of this text. Um, the first half is Daniel chapter 1 through 14, where he's really getting the dream. And then Daniel chapter, or verse 15 through the end, is the interpretation of the dream. And at the end of the first half, in verse 14, it ends with this statement. And then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. The judgment will come, but so will restoration. That your relationship will be fixed. That, that, that the judgment will happen, and it will bring you back, as, as, as any punishment will, and you will be restored. That, you will be that, that, that there will be a fixed, covenantal relationship between you and me. And then the end of the second half, the end of verse 25, and it's talking about Antichicus the fourth Antiphanes, and it says, And he shall be broken, but not by human hand, by God's hand. You will be destroyed, and the tyrant will be broken. There's a greater hope here that whether we, if, if we're, if we're nose-diving as a culture, that we can still fight and love and live for the gospel and bring as many people with us as we possibly can. And there is hope through the prophetic future that we will be restored, the people of God will be restored, and that all evil and that all tyrants will be broken. Not because it just happens systematically throughout the course of history, but because God raised them to power and that he will squish them when he's done. That they will be broken. They will be broken. They will be defeated. So, as a young adult ministry, I, I want us to thrive. I, I, I see my job as a young adult pastor is to do all that I can to draw us together to grow us up 
to, to, to expose us to deeper and deeper levels of godly community that isn't just, just fun for fun's sake, but that we are able to get together and grow together as a body of Christ. And maybe by the grace of God and his ability to reveal himself, shift our culture. You know, it seems daunting, and there's a pessimism in me that says the ship has taken on too much water. It's sinking, and I just want to live for Christ the best I can as we're going down. You know what I mean? But God is big. I don't know what his plan is. I know that we'll win in the end. But he has called us very specifically, intimately, and intricately to his plan. And I believe that we as a culture um, can grow and can shift those that are around us. And God willing, maybe draw revival for the cause of Christ. And maybe we can be part of that as a culture. Not you individually, but as a culture. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for... um, calling us and for um, giving us the foundation of the gospel that we know Father when we are adopted as sons and daughters um, that we are yours and nobody can snatch us out of your hand and Father I ask that you would help us to see both the joy of that Uh, but also the calling, not just individually, but corporately as a body. Father, I thank you that you have put us in this place where we have freedom right now. Um, I thank you even uh, for the microcosm of this group and the believers that I know that are in here and are pursuing you. And Father, I ask that you would open our eyes even more and that you would open eyes of the culture at large around us to your saving truth. In Jesus' name, amen.